Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio, it's time for Family Business Radio. Showcasing outstanding family businesses and the advisors who assist them. Good afternoon. You're listening to another episode of Family Business Radio. I am your host, Anthony Chen. Today, we have two great and amazing guests. To kind of kick us off the show, we have Ali Jamal with Stable Goat Hospitality. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great. Uh, so kind of share with us uh, your story of what got you into real estate. Yeah, so I'll try to um, keep this somewhat uh, condensed for your for your audience. Um, but essentially, I bought my first piece of real estate when I was 19 years old. Um, I had saved up uh, about 20,000 bucks uh, between a couple of jobs while I was in college. And the deal that I had with my mother at the time uh, when I was saving this money is that once I had saved this 20,000 bucks, she would come uh, on my 19th birthday to uh, the car dealership with me and co-sign on a loan uh, for a new car. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, as when the time came around, uh, I went to speak to my mom on my birthday about going to the car dealership uh, with that $20,000. And she looked at me for a couple of seconds and she says, son, you, you might be one of the stupidest people I've ever seen in my life. Because if you think I'm going to let you take that $20,000 and put it towards that car versus something that's going to hopefully pay you into the future, you are nuts. So uh, uh, begrudgingly, she grabbed my ear, took me to a, a development in uh, uh, downtown Vancouver. I lived in Vancouver, Canada at the time. And uh, there was a condo going for sale for about 170000 bucks. And so she made, to make a long story short, she made me put that uh, 20K as a down payment on that condo. Um, to give you context of how right she was over time, that same condo, which I still own, by the way, uh, uh, as of today. But when I left uh, Vancouver when I was 27 to come to Atlanta, um, uh, by that time, that same condo was worth about $2.5 million. So, um, and that that's somewhat abnormal because, of course, you know, Vancouver's real estate was just crazy during that period of time. So I was, part of that is luck. But it serves a very, uh, very good, serves as a very good lesson over and above the fact that if it wasn't for my mom, I'd probably be driving a rusted out Honda Civic Si right now. But uh, you know, over over and above that, the the appreciation opportunity in real estate, if you buy in the right markets, um, is is definitely you know far by you know by far one of the better alternatives from an investing perspective, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's kind of what started me as a real estate investor at an early age. Um, over time, as that value, the valuation of that condo went up, I started to take out equity um, from that piece of real estate. And then once again, um, you know, my first thought process was, let me take that equity and now buy a nice car. And again, my mom brought me down to earth and was like, no, you're going to buy another condo. And to make a long story short, over the, the span of between the age of 19 and 27, I had built up a portfolio as a side hustle of like, I think by that time it was like, 20 homes or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I was doing a whole bunch of different things. So aside from working my corporate job that I was working at the time um, and, and owning these places, I started to like rent out the homes on a room by room basis to get more cash flow. Um, some of them and some of them I would, you know, I, I bought as duplexes, fourplexes. So I was getting a lot of cash flow from these assets. My challenge was though, all the money that I was making from the from rent from these assets, the money was going straight to mortgages, and so I, there was really no strong cash flow or not strong enough cash flow where I could pivot into real estate investing full time, which was really what I wanted to do. That was wh- where my passion was, and and from an economic perspective, I could see that that's where the real payoff was going to be for me in the long run. And so I'm speaking to my accountant. Um, in 2011, uh, once again, I was about 27 years old and, um, I was, you know, telling her like, you know, I really want to do real estate investing full time, but I'm just not in the position to do so. And she's like, look, Ali, there's a huge, you know, recession going on in the U S right now. And what you're buying houses for here in Vancouver, you could get like a hundred unit apartment complex in cities like Atlanta or St. Louis or whatever. And, um, and if, if you can operate it correctly, you'll be able to live off the cash flow of one of properties. And so to me, I, I couldn't even 
it didn't make any sense to me because I'm here. I am in Vancouver buying condos for like seven hundred thousand bucks and mortgaging most of that, and it was just such different context. So to make, you know, she connected me with a broker here in Atlanta um, who showcased to me a hundred and twenty-seven unit hotel in Roswell, Georgia. Um, so I flew out, visited the property, walked through it, and found really quickly that what she was saying was right. There was a lot of opportunity to acquire decent assets at a very low price point at that point in time. And so the second question, once I walked the property for me was, okay, A, looks like a good potential deal, but what would I do with it? Because here you have a exterior corridor hotel in a suburb in Atlanta. Um, Most hotels in that area and across the city and probably across the U.S. at the time we're not doing very well because once again, because of the recession. And so I, I was driving around the neighborhood, just trying to kind of figure out what local occupancy rates were and all that kind of stuff. And basically all the local hotels in that area were running at very low occupancy rates, like probably like 30% and, and below. But the hotel right adjacent to this one that I was looking at potentially acquiring was a studio six and And for those of you who are not familiar with Studio 6, it's basically an offshoot of the Motel 6 model. And it's basically for individuals who want to stay for longer periods of time. So like weekly kind of stays. Um, And this Studio 6 was like jam-packed. Like the parking lot was overflowing. And I was like, what in the world are they doing that's so different than these other hotels? So I decided to stay there that night. Stay to the Studio 6. And I found really quickly what their business model was, was really just brilliant. Um, Essentially, they were running an apartment complex, but under hotel regulations, which means that if if, if a tenant or a customer of yours does not pay for their stay, instead of you being tied into a 60-day eviction process, you just get them out the next day. You call the cops and they're, they're gone. So that protects your cash flow. So here you have a business where you can fill your units fairly quickly because the price uh, the, the price for rent is going to be fairly low, but then you don't have to uh, fight for your evictions and deal with all the costs that go along with that. Mm. And so to me, I was like, if we can just copy what these guys are doing, we should be good because the cost of this 127 unit hotel was very low. Full transparency was about a million bucks at the time. Mm-hmm. So well below replacement cost, right? Like to build that hotel, even at that time from ground up would have cost me five or six million minimum and so just if you're picking it up at a million you already know you're buying value and so that's essentially what we did so fairly quickly i was able to um raise capital between family and friends uh, and i was lucky to be able to do that because honestly i had no track record in the hotel space so i was really you know my mom my mom remortgaged one of her homes um was able to get some money from uncles uh in, in england was able to you know scrounge up some some a little bit of my own capital and we're able to put together the million dollars to acquire this hotel so now put together the money bought the hotel now we had a business concept which was run it like an apartment complex but i didn't really still know how it would do um and how we would be able to kind of you know uh, generate the traffic from the next door neighbor uh, studio six Within about 60 days, we implemented the business model, which essentially, once again, nothing extraordinarily brilliant. It was just, what are they charging a week for the rooms? Okay, they're charging 400. Let's do 200. That was basically it, just to see how much traffic we could take over. Within about 90 days, we're sitting about 80% occupancy at a $30 average daily rate per night. Um, so let's just say 127 rooms, so 100, let's say 115, 120 of them rented a night at 30 bucks. You can do the maths about let's say approximately $3,000 a day, mm-hmm. you've already created a million dollar business very quickly um, on a property that you picked up for a million bucks. That's, you can't really beat those numbers, you know? Mm-hmm. So my investors were obviously very happy. And part of this was I was able to manage the operating costs by living in the hotel. So, um, and that was a, a blessing at the time because you it forced me to learn the business from the ground up. And so I lived in the hotel for three years um, ran pretty much every component of the business. And, um, and, and now my investors were very happy. So as, as you guys already know, you know, if your investors are happy, the likelihood is they're going to want to, you know, reinvest into the snowball. And that's really what happened. So we started acquiring more hotels and 
as time went on, we kind of scaled the business. So as of today, we've grown the business. We have 16 hotel locations across the country, um, all within the same model, um, representing approximately 3,000 units, 3,000 doors. Um, and then we've diversified into other real estate uh, divisions. So we have a vacation rental division, which has about, uh, t- about 20 homes or so. We have a uh, residential division, which has about 20 homes. We have uh, a, an event hall division uh, where we serve as like a landlord on, on event halls, which are about, I think seven or eight of those. Um, and we also have a commercial division, which is growing. So, you know, overall now we've kind of built a portfolio of about $80 million of assets under management over the last 13 years. Um, and it's just been a, it's been a great, you know, it's been a great journey. It's been fun. Great. Wow. So did, at the end of the day, did you finally get a car? <laughs> I finally did get a car. So it took me till I was like 38 to <laughs> finally buy the, 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 my dream car. So my dream car was, has always been a McLaren. Oh. And so I uh, ended up getting a, a, a McLaren, uh, you know, just three years ago mm-hmm. for, the, for the first time. Now to give you context on that as well, the funny, the funny part of that is up until I got my McLaren, I was Sorry, up until I got my McLaren, I was driving a Ford pickup uh, for the longest period of time. So, you know, and and it all started with me because I never drove a pickup back in Vancouver. But when I got the first hotel, I needed to like go to Home Depot, pick up supplies and you're picking up, you're doing all this kind of stuff. And you're, you're, it's a little bit more rugged at that point. And, um, and so for the longest period of time, I was driving a pickup, even when I got my corporate office, I still couldn't, cause I was so comfortable in the truck then. And then really by that point, it's like your, your, your need and want for that. So you, I kind of had outgrown it. It wasn't really a, a big value proposition, but I looked back and I was like, you know what, this has been on my bucket list for a long time. Um, and like, I'm not going to, like, I don't want to be 80 years old enjoying, you know, a sports car. Um, which is fine if you are, but like, I, I mean, for me, I wanted to enjoy it while I still had, you know, some semblance of black hair left. Okay. And, uh, so that's, that's pretty much gone now, but I was able to get in at least those couple of years with it. So yeah. cool. now, now, how was it like turning the tables on your mom where you're approaching her about, or, and of course with, with your family members of, of this investment opportunity here in Georgia? Um, so how was it in terms of like what their, what was their response? Well, not just her, but kind of turning the tables on her because she was the one who brought you into real estate. Yes. Now you're bringing her a deal instead of her bringing you yeah. uh, a prospect. Well, you know, moms are always going to be the easiest sell because they're going to like, I mean, they're going to look over <laughs> all your flaws, right? And they're going to, they're, they're really going to, you know, for as hard as she was, you know, and she had a tough life coming to Canada as a refugee and she had much tougher life than I did. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but she's always going to be my number one fan, obviously. So, you know, she was, she hesitated for a couple seconds, asked a lot of tough questions. And then she was like, okay, if you want to do it, go, you know, I'm going to support you. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just, you know, and I've been blessed with someone like that uh, in, in my life. So yeah, I mean, on my mom's side, it was a little bit easier. Uh, my uncles, I have three uncles in, in, in London who were, um, you know, were very shrewd investors. And so they had a lot of tough questions. And so me being 27, not running a business per se before, I mean, I had rental properties, but that's very different than running a full on operation. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, they, they were coming at me like with every tough question you can imagine. And I didn't pass the test of most of their questions, but they still, you know, were able to, um, to, to look past that uh, side note though, one of those uh, uncles investors at 75 went. So when I took over the hotel for the first um, three months, he stayed on site with me um, to make sure that his money wasn't going on. The, like he was like, I'm going to make sure that, you know, you're doing the right yeah. thing. So, you know, even though I was sweat equity, I did have a lot of support. And I mean, those, I mean, even at the, you know, he came in a later stage in his life, but the wisdom that he provided was way outweighed the, the, the monetary investment. I mean, this having someone and a lot of times, especially in that kind of scenario, it's not even the, even the wisdom per se, it's just having the moral support. Someone would be like, you know what? This looks like a pretty tough project. You might've, you know, taken a bigger bite than what you can chew. However, let's do it. I, I, I got your back. We're, we're going to make this work. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just having that 
gets you over some of the hard stuff. You know what I mean? Because the wisdom side of things, I mean, we have enough tools now where you can Google answers to stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, if I'm having a hard time with the hotel, at, at whatever, I can learn it fairly quickly with all the tools that we have technology wise. But you know, what we don't have is that personal touch, right? Where you can, where someone can be like, Hey, you know what? You'll be all right. Today was a tough day. Let's, let's, let, let's start from scratch tomorrow. And that's what he provided, which was more valuable than anything else. Mm. And kind of speaking of wisdom, there's two, I guess, elephant questions that I imagine our listeners definitely want to ask you because you, you've experienced approaching family members for investments in business. That That's a very touchy subject. And then of course, the other side is being able to uh, find more or less a mentor or mm-hmm. someone to kind of be your cheerleader per se. Uh, kind of share with the audience, like how how is your mindset going in with your relatives, or in this case, your uncle, and, and not just passing the trial of the questions, but kind of convincing them enough, or kind of where what your process, what the thought process going through all that was like. So the the, the history behind my relationship with the uncles is is interesting because so what happened before leading up to that time is mm-hmm. between the ages of going back to 19 and 27 when i was back in vancouver every summer i would have to go to london to work in their hotels uh-huh. so i had already like the track they had, and i was working for free it's not like it's like a paid internship it's like no you're working here because you're our bloodline and it is, what it is right? <laughs> okay. so it was it was that sort of thing and i remember just to give you context of kind of their philosophy on life and business mm. uh, it, they, I remember the first day I was working with them, I came down stairs, jeans and a t-shirt. Okay. Very West coast kind of, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, it's not like you have a Hilton or something like, you know, these are just basic bed and breakfast mm-hmm. and I'm working the desk. I'm here for free. Kind of had a different thought process than they did for sure. He looked at me for a couple of seconds. He's like, get, go back upstairs, put on your suit and tie. And that's what you're going to wear every single. And, and so every day I had to wear a suit and tie the entire day. And that British kind of just strong, strict kind of component of like how to run a business got instilled in me very early. So like even till today, I still wear a suit and tie to my own office. I don't obviously have to answer to anyone to wear that. And people a lot of times ask me like, why do you wear a suit and tie? Like you're, you're, you don't even, and I'm, it's so ingrained in me mm-hmm. that um, it's just a part of, um, it's just a part of how I approach my day now. Cause it gives me that structure uh, and it anchors me. And so Going back to your original question, that relationship was already in place. So by the time he had come out there, we had such a history of working together from that aspect of things mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it just, it, it very nicely aligned. So then for our listeners that were thinking they can just have a secret where they can just immediately approach their family members. And if they don't have that history, eh, I, the receptors might be a little different. Absolutely. I, I think that's a great point. I, I think the, like with anything in life, it's about branding yourself, right? And so even coming back to the family context, mm. you're not going to get anyone to invest in you if they don't believe in the person that you are. So my brand, I guess at that time in my life was not so much successful execution of business because I didn't have that track record, but it was integrity for sure because they knew that going back to the example, I worked for free every summer, right? Without even asking uh, for payment after the first time Um, and, and, you know, and, and doing certain things. So I think it's just like, like family and, and, and real life business, there's a lot of similarities. And I think, so I created a brand within my family where they knew that they can trust me Mm -hmm. and that like, you know, even, even on the real estate side that I had already started, there was some level of track record and success. And they probably saw what I was doing, at least from a hard work perspective and some of those things. So I think I'd built that brand within my family and they were willing to invest in that. So whether it's outside of family or inside, I think it's going to be very challenging to find investors. And if, if people don't have trust in where they're giving their capital, mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, that, that relationship and track record definitely, you know, has to, to be there to a certain extent, except with moms, they'll, they'll overlook some stuff. So, yeah, cool. Well then kind of going back to your experience, you met, you shared about living in the hotel for like three years, Mm -hmm. but you've also already had some kind of hotel hospitality experience. Kind of share with the, with the audience, like what you've learned that would not have been possible if you had not lived there uh, on site, because 
when I'm thinking when we're talking about real estate investors, a lot of people have this kind of dream where there's these ads on YouTube and everything else. Oh, you can be a passive investor, just dump money here and then magic happens. But I'm going to assume it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I'd say, look, if you want to be a um, a passive investor, and we call that an LP, right? Like some limited partner. And there's, as you said, there's so many pitches out there to get LPs into, into deals. Mm. You can make money as an LP or a passive investor, but you're not going to make as much as the person managing the asset. So you got to understand that, number one, and hopefully most people are, it's, it's advertised that way. Sometimes it's not from what I see. Um, and, and the other thing is, is that I think just in general, I would say from my experience, and I don't know if this is an industry standard, but like I would say if they're, if if people are telling you as an LP or a passive investor that you're going to get a 10% return on your money, realistically, it's probably going to be like five, right? Like it's, I mean, it's just the, the advertising number that you're, that you're, that people are going to push you on versus like the reality number is going to be, there's going to be a huge spread there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I, I would say that I'd say if you, if there's a, someone who wants to now get into the actual active management and ownership of real estate, my advice for them is start small. So start and and like, that doesn't mean that you can't grow a real estate portfolio, but like don't try to take on an apartment building right away, mm-hmm. buy a single family residential home, and if you want to try to push cash flow, see what you can do with that home. Uh, turn it into a vacation rental. Um, rent it out by the room. Um, there's a, a whole bunch of third-party um, programs like com- uh, companies like Padlist and all this other kind of stuff that will manage your room rentals now. There's so many creative ways in which you can monetize that single-family home in a strong way mm-hmm. that you, you know the sky is really the limit. And if you can get even more creative and start acquiring homes, utilizing owner finance models or creative finance models where you're not paying the nine or 10% the banks are charging you, but you can work out a situation where someone who needs to really get rid of their home will, will, will work with you and, and give you a three or 4% interest rate. There's all these interesting strategies you can use on that very small micro level mm. that you can hone your skills on and then start building. So for our listeners, kind of hearing your origin story, they're thinking, all right, well, I might not have family members I can just lean on or work over summer for free. I'm a little older than 19. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you did share the, the tidbit of, well, just start with one and start small. Well, for those who might have started small and kind of one step in or half a foot out, because you mentioned it was kind of your side gig. At what point kind of in your career where you knew, all right, I need to like go full all in or just let this kind of continue as a kind of a quote unquote side thing. I, I think it comes down to, and I hate, cause I think this word is like overly used, but like, I think it really does come down to, to passion. If that's something you re- want to do. So it's like not, I don't think everyone's meant to or built to do real estate investing full time or become mm-hmm. an entrepreneur full time. I don't think there's anything wrong at all for someone to be an entrepreneur, to work within an organization and maybe even negotiate equity in that organization or do something of that nature mm-hmm. And then keep a side hustle of real estate or work for an organization, forget the entrepreneur aspect of it, just get a good, decent salary mm-hmm. and start investing on the side. I mean, going back to my mother, you know, she was, she's a refugee from East Africa, mm-hmm. came to Canada, was working clerical jobs, nothing extraordinary. She was making thirty, forty $40,000 a year at most. Mm-hmm. And she built up a portfolio of like 20, 30 homes, right? She was a multimillionaire as a single mom, as a refugee, much more impressive than anything I've, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've not even close to, to that. So, you know, if you, if you think about that, there's no, I don't think you have to, by any means, get into real estate investing full time. I think you can do what you love, do it on the side as a, as a nice investment vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can really merge both. Um, if you want to do it full time and if you have that passion then I think there's a lot of different pivots uh, that you can utilize. But I would say, make sure, like I, everyone's story is going to be different and everyone's backdrop will be different. So like you said, like a lot of people are not going to have the opportunity for, you know, family investors or even investors at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you need to build that base. You need to start if while you're working, go to meetups, Mm -hmm. um, sell people on the fact that you don't have the capital, but you are willing to be sweat equity in, you know, even smaller deals. And I think once you can build that smaller base, then you can kind of go from there. It's just going to take you longer than it would 
someone with those connections. That makes sense. Yeah. So as kind of closing out the questions for, for our younger uh, audience that has got their ears perked up, what would you have, what kind of advice would you have given to your younger self if you had started all over? Um, take more risks if you can. So in what I mean, so I think if you're 19 and you have a little bit of income coming in and you can acquire more than one piece of real estate, I would absolutely do it because you have a lot of runway ahead of you where even if you fail, you can get back on your feet and, you know, and, and succeed again, build up, build up your portfolio again. So I would say plant as many seeds as you can early um, because the time to take risks is really, in my opinion, in your younger age versus doing it at 45, right? And 50, where you're going to have a lot more responsibilities and things of that nature. Obviously, that's somewhat balanced with the fact that at that age, at 19, you're not going to have the same financial resources as you would at 45. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of a tricky puzzle, but if you can figure out how to take more risks that are calculated at an early stage in your life, I think it's going to pay you back significantly more going into the future. Because as, as you know, being a real estate or being an investor yourself, um, you know, the longer, the, the earlier you get started and the more, you know, runway you have, the more successful you're going to be from a compounding factor into the future. Mm-hmm. And so just start early and be as aggressive as you can early on. So I'm assuming that risk is not so much driving around in sports cars at 19, but more so throwing your money yes. <laughs> at investments. A- absolutely, yeah. So mm-hmm. from a risk perspective, I mean, absolutely geared more towards the investment side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it put put your capital into more things early on that's going to pay you into the future. Great. So how can our listeners uh, reach out and find you to learn more? So my personal website is alijamal.com. Um, and from there, you can go to any of our company websites. We have very various companies, uh, as I mentioned, in the various sectors that we're involved in real estate. But the blessed place to start is alijamal.com. Um, and, uh, and and that's a great way to connect. I, I connect with anyone who messages me through there. So feel free to do so. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Right. Our next guest, we have Lalitha Aladi with Aladi Law. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Great, thank you for coming on. Kind of share with us uh, your story. What got you into law, particularly immigration law? Well, you know, uh, I think that when I first started looking at different uh, options for careers in undergrad, I thought it was going to be in the sciences. Uh, It wasn't until I really started getting into organic chemistry that I realized maybe that wasn't my thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really enjoyed math. And again, you'd say math, law, where, where are you seeing the connection here? Uh, well, my dad was a math professor, is still a math professor. And so he told me, you know, if, if law is something that you're starting to feel interested in, continue to take your, more math courses because that's only going to improve your logical thinking. And uh, I, I know that he had his own reasons for pushing me in math, but at the same time, I don't think he was wrong because I really enjoyed that in that form of thinking where there's logic behind the arguments you make and there's, you know, a sort of a wrong and a right answer. And I enjoyed that type of a thought process. So I started taking, um, I joined the pre-legal honor society, started looking into what it takes to join law school. And, and, you know, uh, I, being from an Asian background, we tend to get pushed in certain areas for career paths. But I would say that unlike most, my family was excited that I had started thinking about law because we did have um, law in our family in, in previous generations. So uh, they were, although two generations had sort of skipped over it, they were uh, really happy to see that I was interested in that it was coming back into the family again. So they were really encouraging about uh, me joining law school. Now, once I was in law school, uh, one of the things I enjoyed the most was actually trial advocacy. It so happened the university that I went to, Stetson University, was number one in trial advocacy. So that could have a lot to do with the fact as, as to why I enjoyed it, because they had the best program. So uh, I love being in court and being in trial. So I, my career started off as a prosecutor. Till this day, I might even say that was one of my most favorite jobs that I've held. Um, unfortunately, it didn't allow me to have the lifestyle as I grow my family that I would need. Mm-hmm. So I, I did I decide to go into uh, you know a different area of law. Mm-hmm. 
at that time, um, I went into bankruptcy law because that was the recession. And that's where a lot of lawyers were needed the most during that time. So I was in bankruptcy law for a few years, but then I had an opportunity to really learn about immigration um, and work for a company where I was able to deal with business immigration, which is something that had been interesting for quite some time, but just didn't know where to get my feet wet. And that was a really great place to learn immigration law. Since then, I've now been practicing immigration alone for 10 years. And my interest in that is, is it just comes from a natural place. I'm an immigrant and I've seen the different types of immigrant stories that people have had, whether it's friends or family. And, you know, when you really look at it, other than Native Americans, everyone several generations away, or maybe just this past generation, has some type of immigrant story. That's why there are all of these genealogy tests, right? Everyone wants to know they're 25% this and 17% that because they recognize that they are all from different places. So I feel like... You know, I can do a small part in contributing to these uh, immigrant stories by helping them really make their dreams come true here. Mm-hmm. So that's how it started. So kind of share with us, uh, for when people think of immigration, they usually think of just spousal or family immigration. Mm-hmm. Kind of share with the story in terms of like a business owner mindset. Uh, uh, yeah. What circumstance uh, would an employer consider an immigration attorney? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, there are several ways that that might happen. So- Take, for example, some larger companies. They may have an individual who is a CEO in their Brazil office, but now they need to bring them to the U.S. They need them to run this section of a new new company that they're starting within their larger framework. You know, they have different companies and they're merging companies and things like that. So they need someone to head it up while they're here. Well, they need that individual who already has the experience within their company to come here and run that part of their business. How are they going to do that without that individual having work authorization? So we would help them attain a visa that they're eligible for, bring them here, and with that employment-based visa, they automatically also get work authorization. And the thing about those visas are they're all temporary. So they may be for two years, three years, certain number of years, And if that person has been here for such a time that the employer feels, you know what, they are doing so well, we can see them being a permanent employee and we could really use them in this way. You know, they can help us grow our business in this way. And that employee is also interested in staying here. Then that's the time that they're going to discuss uh, applying for a green card for that individual. It's not always the case that people who come here on a temporary visa want to stay in the U.S. I've had uh, situations where they're here for a certain number of years and they said, nope, I did my time. I was here for the three years that I said I would help do X, Y, Z for the business. But my life is really back in Brazil or wherever they're from. And they said, you know, I want to return and uh, I like the benefits better. You know, (laughs) some countries have better uh, maternity leaves and vacations and things like that. And they said, that's really where my life is. Mm. You're all working too hard in the U.S. and they may return. So uh, it's not always the case that they want to be here forever. They do their bit sometimes and leave and other times they want to stay and uh, continue to work for that company. You mentioned the words uh, visa and green card. Yes. For those who are not in the know when it comes to immigration law, what are the differences? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I say visa and green card because I feel that that's what most people understand. Mm -hmm. But if you really start to get technical about it, they call them an immigrant visa and a non-immigrant visa. That's where I think it starts to get confusing. So this is what I mean. When I say visa, I'm referring to people wanting to be here on a temporary basis. So visas can range from a visitor visa, someone just coming to the U.S., visiting for up to six months. Or a visa could be that they're coming here on an employment-based visa and they want to be here for three years. But all of these visas or non-immigrant visas mean they're here only for a temporary basis. Their intention Mm -hmm. is what matters. Their intention is not to be here permanently. When I refer to a green card, that's permanent residence. They are looking to stay here permanently, make this their permanent home, and 
settle down here and they're letting the United States know, I want to settle down here and they're applying for it on that more permanent basis. The next level is citizenship, right? You're saying, no, I want to be a U.S. citizen with more rights, not just live here, but really be part of the, you know, the bread and butter of America. And I want to vote here. I have certain rights that I accrue by becoming a U.S. citizen. Um, I, I can serve on the jury, you know, things like that. So they have more rights. Um, and, and, you know, for some time there's also talk about, um, you know, what, how they're different rights that, Per permanent residents have mm -hmm. versus what citizens have. I'll just give you an example. If someone were to get arrested for something, okay? If someone were to get arrested and they were a U.S. citizen versus they were arrested as a permanent resident, mm -hmm. different things can happen. As a U.S. citizen, you are not going to get kicked out of the country. You'll serve your jail time, your prison time, your probation, whatever you're supposed to serve. Mm -hmm. But as a permanent resident, if you were to be uh, arrested for something or you were convicted for something, now deportation proceedings can start to get you kicked out of the country, to get you deported. Mm -hmm. So you have a different level of rights depending on which type of status you have in the U.S. Oh, I did not know that. Then speaking of, and then kind of circling back on, on the green card situation. Yeah. Where those who are kind of already have a green card here and they're thinking of bringing other family members over here, what does that process like is it right. just any family member or i'm um, like what, how, how tight and do they have, or close mm -hmm. do they have to be yeah really to sponsor any family member it is a very close-knit circle that you can sponsor mm -hmm. green card holders can sponsor their spouse they can sponsor their uh, their child mm -hmm. uh, a minor child uh, there's very little that a green card holder can sponsor once you become a U.S. citizen, now you can sponsor your fiancé, your spouse, or your uh, minor children. You can sponsor a brother or sister. Don't get me wrong. That's going to take about 15, 20 years. It's a very long wait time. That's a whole other discussion wow. as to how that works. There are wait times depending on the type of family member that you are. Mm -hmm. So I could sponsor a minor child. That will be much faster. Okay. Or I might sponsor a child who's over the age of 18, but is unmarried. So there are different classifications even for a child or there's married child, right? So I might have a 25 year old child of mine. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, but they're married, but I just, I want to sponsor them. I want yeah. them to come to the United States. And so I might do that. So depending on your different, uh, there are different categories, even in that. And so again, not to get too into the weeds here, they are different, categories of family-based green cards, and there's different categories of employment-based green cards. And there's a whole chart we have to follow and look at every month to see if your case is called in line. The way I like to compare it is this. Uh, I might apply, there's two parts to every green card case. Mm -hmm. You file part one right now, and that'll, you know, once it gets approved, you have to see when you're allowed to apply for part two. Okay. And that part two may be at the same time. You can file it at the same time as part one, or it may not be for another 18 years, depending on where you fall in this chart, in these categories, what country you were born in. There are a lot of factors that play into it. And every month the government um, puts out more information about uh, which cases can file part two. Mm -hmm. And so you're sort of waiting in this line I'd like to compare it to you being at the bakery and taking a ticket yeah. and then you're waiting to get called. And it's not until your name has been called that you can go prick up your fancy cake. But a timeline <laughs> is going from a year to 18 years. That is right. Because it depends on the, t see there, it depends on the category that you're in. Mm -hmm. Employment based cases are faster for many, but again, the countries of China and India have long wait times. It's, you know, related to population. It's, it's related to various factors. There's always um, people lobbying about how this system could work better. Mm -hmm. uh, but until there's actually a change, a lot of Chinese and Indians end up having to wait six to 10 years for certain employment-based green cards. 
Now, even on an employment base, does it matter what kind of profession as well? Because it sounds like it, it gets really technical. Yeah, it is very technical. It is not a, it. So the profession is going to matter. Uh, the um, the type of things we look at, we need to know who your employer is. Mm-hmm. We need to know the type of profession, the actual the job title that you have. Okay, a um, lot of things can change this: the salary level, um, your education level. These are all some factors that we would look at 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 first glance, like at a very initial intake. Mm-hmm. This is the very basic information that you would need, because you can imagine there might be especially, like I said, these Chinese and Indians who are waiting for so long. What if they want to change jobs? Oh. I mean, you know how it is. Sometimes you don't like an employer for whatever reason. Maybe you're not being treated fairly. Whatever's happening, mm-hmm. you're not getting promoted. You've really put your you know blood, sweat, and tears into this and nothing is changing. Things may be happening, but you may be stuck in this job because you're waiting on this green card. Mm-hmm. So the the plight, if you must, you know, for some of these individuals is very real. They have to stick it out sometimes. Um, depending on where are, they are in their case, they may be able to transfer their case to another employer. It all depends on where they are mm-hmm. in their case. And um, a lot of technicalities. Now, kind of share with the audience. So let's, you brought up in an event that they're kind of trapped with, with an employer that they want to leave and they're already in queue. Mm-hmm. That's for example, you mentioned they might've yeah. been a couple of years in already. Right. If they decide to leave, would that mm-hmm. reset the clock completely? Um, so that's a really tricky question. And I think it would be too, um, too detail oriented yeah. <laughs> to get into it. Is it going to be like a Rude Goldberg machine or, or, or that chart <laughs> with a bunch of pictures and, and, and like threads and pins? It's and... really a situation by situation okay. issue. Yeah. Um, because you're looking at, you know, where you are in your case proceeding, mm. what's already been filed, how long you've been waiting since you filed it. So there's a lot of things that come into play. And mm-hmm. so that's why I say it's a situation by situation case. Okay. So if you've p- filed one portion of your case, you've been waiting for a minimum of a year, then you may be able to switch employers. The good news is your wait time, if you're in that good, you know, golden spot where you can switch, mm-hmm. the good news is your wait time doesn't start all over. Okay. The date that you, that ticket, yeah. you can now transfer that ticket with the same date. Okay to the other employer, but you have to be in that sweet spot uh-huh. to be able to make that change. Well, this not sounds very complicated. It is, it is complicated. <laughs> and you mentioned with the month to month change, it, yeah. it's almost like finding out you know, what kind of box of chocolates you're about to yeah. get. I mean, we, I've had times when, uh, you know, people are waiting for so long, they're checking it month to month. Uh-huh. They're obviously more vested in this than we are. Right. Yeah. So they're looking month to month. And then you better believe when their number gets called up, Hey, Lalita, (laughs) I just looked next month. Uh My case is going to be eligible. Of course they're excited. Look how long they've been waiting. Mm -hmm. Their life changes. And so naturally now's the time. We're like, yes, bring me XYZ documents. We need to get this file. Let's get this going. And it's, it's really life changing for them. Mm. Well, that kind of perfectly segues. That was going to be the next question. Like what, what is, despite all of this insanity that it sounds like it's kind of out of your control and your client's control. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite part of being an immigration attorney? I mean, like I said, it, it really does change these individuals' lives. The the joy they have when they get it, the smile when they're when they have their green card or their citizenship certificate, their naturalization certificate, mm-hmm. they're they can't believe that day has arrived because they're really waiting. It doesn't even matter if it's somebody who received it within a year or two years. They're still you know, they have a lot of dreams based on this, what mm. they can do after this. You know, th- that could be something as easy as applying for just their, dry, not for citizenship, they have it before then, but certain visas, once they have it, they can apply for their driver's license. They can't even drive or they can't even work in some situations. Mm. They can't get a social security number. That prevents them from doing so much. Mm-hmm. So an example is if when someone gets married and they're here with their spouse, but they're waiting to get their green card, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a catch-2020. In part of proving that they truly are a married couple, this is not a fraudulent marriage, you have to provide all these documents, right? Yeah. That it's not some 90-day fiancé trickery, mm-hmm. right? We have to show all of this evidence that it's real. Mm-hmm. Part of it, that one of the things that they'll ask for is, give me some copies of bank statements, that you, that you share bank accounts, that you share this, that you share this. We want to see that you've really merged your lives together. Mm-hmm. 
Well, many times they can't get a bank account because they don't have a social security number. So how are we going to do that? Mm -hmm. So we have to, you know, uh, really figure out how to provide evidence that is actually available. And then you have to sometimes explain why evidence will not be available. Mm -hmm. It's not for a lack of trying. They want to fuse their banks, bank accounts together, but unfortunately they can't get one here yet, yeah. you know, or you, you know, they want to show that you're living in this, uh, in the same house, show me your driver's license. They don't have a driver's license yet. They need to be able to show this. So we have to find other methods of showing that they are truly a married couple living jointly and together. It's kind of like the chicken. And egg. It is a chicken and the egg. So I, you know, in some situations, my clients are able to get it. Sometimes it depends what state because different DM. Well, I say DMV because I'm from Florida originally here. What is it? DDS. I, I guess. For yeah. the driver's yeah. license. I don't know what the initials stand for, but. Basically, you understand at the driver's license office, mm -hmm. each state has a different set of rules as to what they will accept and when they will allow it, uh, what proof they're looking for. It should be uniform, but it's not. And so depending on that state, they might have been able to get a driver's license or maybe they didn't. So it depends on that state. Wow. So, okay. So not, not only do they have to go on a month by month, just on, on the wind, wherever the direction of the winds blow, but also... Yeah where they live state-wise yeah. and what employer they're with, oh, what country yeah. they're with, what profession they're with. Okay, what Everything other matters, yes. What, is there anything that doesn't matter? <laughs> that, <laughs> that's quite a question. Mm. No, that's why when we do an intake, when I get on the phone with somebody, first I just get a general idea. Uh, in my intake, I'm just asking a few basic questions, okay. but that's why we have to have a full-blown consultation. The favorite thing attorneys love to hear is, but my friend was able to do, and I said, I love, and I'm so happy for your friend, mm. but I bet you, you don't know everything about your friend. Mm. Like you don't know that they had this happen in their job and that happened. Nobody's giving you all of the personal details. So you don't know. And that's true of all areas of law. That's not just immigration, mm. even in bankruptcy law. Oh, but my friend was able to do this. Yes, but maybe your friend didn't have as much real estate as you thought. Maybe mm -hmm. that was just a perception. I don't know. You know, it's situations are different from person to person. And so that's why we have to do a full-blown consultation to really get that information and find out the nitty-gritty. We, You know what else ends up mattering? I know you wanted me to say these things don't matter, but... There's a lot more that matters. We need to know, you know, your exits and entries into the country was every time that you came in a valid entry, or if you did enter the United States one time and it wasn't with appropriate documentation, was it only once? Were you checked at the border? Were you not checked at the border? There's so much that comes into play with immigration. Mm -hmm. um, and every bit of it can completely change the trajectory of your case. So it's almost like, walking a tight wire in the middle of a hailstorm that you don't know what direction is going to change minute in a minute blindfolded is, is right. what it sounds like. Yeah. But, but that's why, you know, that's why the job feels so good in helping somebody navigate these storms. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I get to be that weatherman out there on TV, just yeah. fighting there. Uh, but somehow providing more help to those individuals telling them you don't have to face this alone. Yeah. Well, as those that are listening in and are thinking, uh, yeah, maybe the friend's situation doesn't apply to me. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this by myself because I don't want to go through a hailstorm blindfolded. Yeah, right. Uh, how can they best find you? Oh, well, like my friend here, Ali said, it's mm. always our website, right? So mm. it's aladilaw.com. That's spelled A-L-L-A-D-I. That's my last name. Mm. Law, L-A-W.com. Uh, that's the best way to reach me. There's a little contact form on there. Someone wants to, you know, shoot me a message or something. We have text capability from the phone number that's online. Great. So any, any one of those ways where you can reach me. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So for our listeners, kind of uh, heard from our two amazing guests, uh, both kind of have a background of really reinventing themselves through kind of the recession and they kind of share their experiences, whether it's moving to another country and just kind of putting all their chips in and living <laughs> in a hotel for, for three years or going to another field and area uh, of law. Uh, since you both kind of reinvented yourself and grew both professionally and business while kind of 
the world was falling apart around you. And kind of addressing the elephant in the room and where our listeners probably listening uh, right now it is June of 2023. Um, some people think we're already in a recession. Some are going into it. Some think we're just, oh, we're just going to be just fine. Well, we're not here to pontificate what's going to happen in the future. But since you've both kind of experienced the storms yourself and rose out of that stronger than going into the storm, um, what are some opportunities that you see on the horizon that you feel that you could take advantage of in your particular field, but also share some words of wisdom for those that might be their first time experiencing this storm themselves in their business, whichever it is in real estate or law. So the question is, since you've both experienced weathering the storm and grew out of it much stronger heading in, for those that are experiencing it for the first time in their professional life or just their young life in general, maybe they were 19, uh, what advice would you give them to navigate those storms? So before we bring our guests back in, this is kind of the legalese uh, portion of the show. So this show is uh, sponsored and brought to you by yours truly, Anthony Chen with Lighthouse Financial Network. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., RAA, member FINRA SIPC. RAA is separately owned and other entities or marketing names, products, or services Reference here are independent of RAA. Our main office address is at 575 Broad Hollow Road in Melville, New York, 11747. Uh, you can best reach me. Uh, my phone here is 631-465-9090, uh, extension 5075, or my email, which is really just my full name, Anthony Chen, C-H-E-N-L-F-N, LLC.com, or you can just connect with me on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, just again, my name, Anthony Chen. Uh, I'm the guy with the glasses with a funny uh, look uh, with the LFN logo uh, behind me. So bring our two amazing guests back in. So the question again is, you've weathered through your recession storm in 08, reinvented yourself, became much stronger. So what advice would you give to those who are, one, going to be navigating the storm for the first time, and two, now that you've experienced it once, how do you see yourself um, leaping forward with this next storm? So, yeah, I'll, I, I think, so speaking personally, just to get really tactical, overly tactical for a second, but I think tactical sometimes is, 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 is valuable for the, on the listening side, especially with real estate because it's hands-on, is one thing I've been doing uh, a lot more of in the last little bit as interest rates have risen is every deal that I approach, I put at the forefront, owner finance. Mm. So we know that interest rates are high right now, mm. and they're probably going to get higher. Taking on a 9% mortgage at 25 years is probably not the smartest move if you can avoid that. So go to a, a seller and say, look, I'll buy your asset, and I'll buy it at full price. You want, for example, $500,000 for it? Okay, I'll do it at 510. But you're going to take back the mortgage. Hopefully they don't have a mortgage already on it because that becomes a whole other situation. But mm-hmm. let's just say that the property was paid off. Um, you know, I'll buy it for 510 and you take back, you know, whatever. Regardless of, I don't know what your down payment would be. Let's say it's 25 grand. You take, I, I'll give you the down payment of 25 grand. You take back the rest of the mortgage, but you have to do it at three or 4%. Mm-hmm. Right now is the opportunity for you to be able to do that. And they're probably, if if they're in the right position, they're probably going to, be agreeable to it because that's really their only option of being able to move their product, i.e. their home. Mm-hmm. And so getting creative in these kind of environments can be very good. So in the last four purchases I've made on the vacation rental side and the hotel side have all been owner finance in that, in that exact vein mm-hmm. where one of the deals I did was at 0% financing on the, on the owner finance side. So I guess getting tactical again for you can jump in and create some of these creative opportunities in these environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's one piece of advice I'd say, I'd say in general from a um, going through a recession, just to understand the framework for yourself should be caution. Absolutely. that. You, but at the same time, look at where the opportunities are and look at how you can be resourceful and push for those opportunities, just going back to the exact tactical example I just gave you. Um, And then really, you know, quick plug for you is, you know, working with someone like yourself who can help them navigate some of these situations. Because I think having a mentor, having someone who can give you the financial advice that 
um, especially for people who are just getting their feet wet in the financial world, it's going to be super important. So yeah, I mean, you, you haven't paid me to, to say this, but, <laughs> but you know, w- you. working with someone who's a professional um, and who has a good reputation and bandwidth behind them uh, on some of these issues. So that's, that's what my advice would be. Thank you. So I'm going to look at it in two, from two different perspectives. Mm. One from someone who's perhaps already in the United States, uh, being an immigration attorney, this is how I think, right? So Mm. someone who's already here, you know, I think this recession that that we're in or, you know, flowing into however you want to term this is we have to look at it as to how it's also different than the previous one. And a lot of it had to do with things that occurred during COVID. Mm. And, I think that a lot of people started looking into the side hustle and this is an opportunity to be able to reinvent yourself. So this might be a time when, if there's something you like to try that out, or if you don't have the education for it, maybe go back to school and to learn more and get the education in an area that you truly want to pursue. You know, this is an area that you're truly interested in. So this may be the time during a recession to, go back to school, you know, that might be the thing to do. Mm -hmm. But I also see where there are businesses that are struggling for employees. That's an ongoing (laughs) issue. And that's in the restaurant industry. We're seeing it a lot in the service industry. And when we're seeing that, that's why I'm starting to see individuals come to me and saying, hey, I'm not able to find anybody We've been looking for over six months. I really need to fill this role. What is possible? You know, there's somebody, there's a, there's a person who's willing to work from such and such country. What's possible? And so the people are starting to look saying, I am not able to otherwise fill these roles. So this is a time when they're looking to immigrants to fill the roles because in the U S there are roles that are open that are not being filled. Mm -hmm. So maybe because they're pursuing their side gig and going back to school because they want to pursue their dreams. So the point is that this, um, I feel that we have to use the opportunity of what's happening right now to, you know, really go ahead and accept the changes and, and say, how can I adapt to it? And these are the ways I think, you know, people should consider adapting. Well, thank you. Before we uh, close out the show, share us uh, with, again the, with the audience how best can they find you, reach out to you, learn more, whether they want to go into real estate or seek some advice on an immigration attorney bit uh, or kind of the advice on weathering the storm. Again, www.alijamal.com and um, or, or add me to my add me to LinkedIn. Ali Jamal is just find me. Ali Jamal Stable Goal Hospitality. I'd be happy to connect on there as well. Okay, so mine is uh, Aladi Law, A-L-L-A-D-I Law, L-A-W, um, dot com, or 404-981-8778. You can reach me. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now, this is a little bit of uh, called Anthony Chen's uh, financial take. Uh, so you've kind of heard from our two amazing guests in ways of either moving tactically uh, or looking through a different perspective, uh, preparing through uh, whether we're in one or going to one or not going heading to a recession. We're, we're not here to pontificate that, but rather setting self one up at least financially to really grow in, in leaps and bounds. And I know sometimes for the listener, they're thinking, well, I'm right now struggling with this and that. How can I really take this advice going forward? Well, we kind of heard uh, from, from Ali's story, especially mother coming in as a refugee, with nothing, and she built a, a several multi million dollar portfolio. Or what I like to harken back to going, uh, looking back a little into history. Uh, for those of my listeners that list, uh, follow me on LinkedIn, is I have this call, thing called the uh, Business History Tuesdays. And during the US uh, recession, or Great Recession, back in 18, was it 1860s into the 70s? Uh, during that time, the same time, right out of that, that we got Thomas Edison and all these other electronic gears and, and, and tools and equipment that we are now using in the palm of our hands that was didn't even exist uh, back in the 1870s. And they were able to build new businesses, reinvent themselves and in, in the middle of an absolute, um, well, kabuki theater for, for, to clean it up for our, for, our, for our listeners. So for those who were kind of on the fence thinking, you know, what, what is it going to be like for either my business 
my professional career or what opportunities, uh, rather than thinking of trying to control the storm that we know that we just can't really control, um, lean into the direction uh, of the winds and say, well, let's look for opportunities rather than really just looking at threats. So whether it is in the financial world, investments, or just really one's professional growth, uh, look for opportunities rather than worrying about things we can't control. And that's a little bit of Anthony's Financial Take. Thank you for listening to Family Business Radio.